Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and today I'm delighted to be joined by the fantastic Julie Benko to talk all about the Broadway musical Harmony, as well as her holiday album, which is out now called Christmas With You. And, and starting with talking about Harmony, um, this is the first time that you've gotten the chance to originate a role on Broadway. And I, I love the idea of that experience and everything that that's meant for you. Um, and so having that opportunity to really workshop a role extensively over a period of time, how has that changed the relationship that you're able to build with a character and just the way that you're able to really craft a lot of details differently? Well, I think especially with this character where there's very little written in terms of what her backstory is, um, I have really enjoyed finding the freedom to build it myself. And I love to do a lot of research. And so I researched you know, women of the time, specifically like communist, Bolshevik women, Jewish women, but also I, I reached out to, I found, so Ruth, my character is sort of an amalgam of a few different people, but the, uh, the woman who Chopin or Irwin Boats, the character who I married to in the show, who was really married to in real life, his first wife, who was Jewish, her real name was Ursula, not Ruth. And, um, I tracked down her daughter and I was able to interview her about her mom. And, and so I was able to sort of pick and choose my favorite things from, you know, uh, each kind of part of my research and infuse it into the character. And then now we're doing the show and it's eight times a week. And it's like every day I get to explore and find something new. And I feel like it's changing you know, we've been open only what three weeks now, but I actually feel like the performance I'm doing now is, um, it feels different than what I gave on opening night. And, um, I actually think part of that is the fact that, you know, once you open, it's like the creatives go away, like your, your director and, and the writers aren't there every single day. So suddenly it starts to feel a little bit more like yours. Um, and a little bit less like, oh, I have to take these notes that are being given to me and implement them. It's like, you get to just play. And so um, I feel like it, it makes it my own because it's night to night, every different, uh, I'm sorry, it's different night to night. And it's also just over time, I feel like getting to work with this character and build her from the workshop last year to now, you know, the rehearsal process we had before we opened, it was like, I was every step of the way sort of raising my hand saying, you know, cause the, if the blocking was walk there, walk there, I would be like, um, I don't understand like why I'm like, can I look at that actually? Or like, I tried that and it was feeling weird. So can, can we, I have a different idea. Can we try it? Can we try it? And Warren Carlisle was really great about me constantly. I would just go to him on all these breaks and be like, I have another idea to try. I have another idea to try. And he was always game. He was like, let's do it. Just try it. Just do it. And so a lot of that stuff ended up in the show. And, uh, you know, even in the duet where you go, like when um when I take off my wedding ring and I, I hold it out to Chopin and he doesn't take it and I throw it at him, like that was like, I was like, I want, I need to, like, how do I, you know, we tried lots of different versions. And then one day I was like, I'm just going to throw it at you. And then Warren was like, keep it, you know? So all this stuff that is just part of how the relationships work. It's like uh, in this show, I've gotten to discover slowly. And so that's been a really gratifying experience. 
it also sounds like it's been such a great experience in terms of of having a director who kind of like like you said will like sit with you between things but also especially when it comes to the the friendship that's so at the center for your character and Sierra Bogus's character Mary um because that's such a central part especially for the duet that the two of you do together um and so how did kind of being able to sit with him and like the three of you really just like fleshing out that friendship really bring a lot more layers and textures to that in the show well, we were very committed to the idea that when the women are on stage, uh, it has to be very meaningful and very layered and nuanced because the amount of time that we actually have is quite limited to to convey our history together and and the depth of the friendship. So it's like that moment where um, she makes me this red coat, you know, and um, the day that I realized, you know, and I said, wait, Warren and Sierra, you know, I was like, I realized like, I don't think anybody in my life, my, my parents, my siblings, my boyfriend, nobody else cares about um, supporting what I care about, which is, you know, my political activism, nobody does. And here's this woman who is, you know, we're friends through our boyfriends and she has made me a beautiful coat. Like she found fabric and designed and sewed this coat for me. And so it's like the most, like at first I remember I was putting on that in the workshop and stuff. I was putting on that. I would always get a laugh, you know, posing and try to be silly with it. And then I realized in one day in rehearsal, I said, this is the most precious gift anyone has ever given to me. And it's from a, it's from a woman, you know, it's not from my boyfriend. It's from, it's from a true friend. And so at the end, when I'm leaving or the end of my character's track anyway, when I'm leaving and I look at the nice coat that I've, you know, I've brought with me and I leave it behind. Instead, I pull out that red coat again and I put it on me as I head out into the unknown. It's like, I'm covering myself with the love of my true friend who stood beside me and and stood up for what I believed in, in whatever way she could, because Sierra's character, it doesn't march in the streets, but she can support me the way that she can, which is to to make make me something that I can wear when I do. And it's such a great costume piece in the show. And I love how much representation there is in everything that you're wearing on stage, you know, even just the use of the color red being such a, a piece of her activism. So she like literally wears it on her sleeves throughout the show. And so how did, you know, all the different costumes that you get in the show really just help you in kind of finessing the character even more? Well, the red coat was also interesting because the first they I, I've had two coats and the first coat that they made me was the same cut, you know, it was the same design, but it was a darker red. And after a couple of weeks, uh, suddenly this bright red coat showed up and the costume designer said, yeah, it just needed to pop more on stage. Like we needed to tell a different, we needed that story to really come alive. And they did that with a bolder version of red. Um, so all of that is really specific. And I had fun collaborating with the costume designer too, where it was, you know, she put a red beret on me for the opening where I've got that cute little plaid outfit, which I love. But I was like, you know, I don't feel like I have enough red on. Like, what if I had a little scarf and she found me this cute little scarf, you know, this, but she, and she tied it like a, like a men's, a man's tie. And then I was like, it's cold, but like, I don't have a real coat. Like, what if I had some gloves, but like, I need to be able to use my fingers to light this torch and stuff. So like they became fingerless gloves. And she was like, but they have to be leather. Like I can't, we can't have them be, you know, we want them to look, it was really fun to like, 
find Linda Cho um, was so collaborative in that way where I was like, what about this? And she said, sure. You know, even, even the boots, I showed up to one of my costume fittings wearing fry boots that were actually the same boots that I wore in Fiddler on the Roof on Broadway. And they wouldn't, I was like, I tried to take them from the production. They wouldn't let us. They were like, no. And um, so I bought the, cause I loved them. So I showed up in these boots and she was like, where are those boots from? And then now I wear fry boots in the show because she, cause I showed up and I was like, I like these. And she was able to bring some of me and put it into my character. I love that. And even just the the small detail that you were mentioning with the gloves and them needing to be fingerless because you are on stage at one point with a literal lit fire torch in your hands. Oh yeah. And you want to talk what are about- some of the- logistical elements of like bringing fire onto stage because there's already so many always so many like safety regulations in place around that as well well first of all you want to talk about like originating a role like in the in the workshop last year we were working on this number and I said I mean I throw out lots of ideas you know that don't get taken and I said you know like I just feel like I want to do something here it doesn't feel like I'm actively I want to have an activity like what do people do at at rallies, don't they like, wouldn't, maybe they light a torch, you know, I'd be great to have a torch. Cut to a year later, they're like, here's your torch. It costs $25,000 to make. I was like, wait, this is the idea that you picked of. (laughs) So I was like, I don't know if this is a great idea to have me wield fire. Um, Because I I have a bad track record from funny girl. I broke a lot of mirrors on stage in that mirror number. But um, anyway, yeah, they have to flame proof. I don't know if the torch itself was $25,000, but like it costs a lot of money to have fire on stage because you have to flame proof all of the clothing that anybody on stage is wearing. So, you know, everything is flame proofed. And then you have to have, you have to send the head of the props department to go get special training to be allowed to be the person in charge of handling fire. And then before every show, he used to fill the little gas tank and he tested out, you know, and, and he had to train me how to use the Zippo properly. And um, there, there was one day where it would not light. And it, apparently something happened where the tank was like not properly aligned. And so the gas wasn't coming out. So I just kept trying to light it. And I was like, Oh, well, it's, it's like, so that was one show. And there have been other shows where the lighter goes out and I have to keep, you know, just trying and praying that it will light. But by then it's like so much gas has released that it goes like <laughs> it has this giant conflagration, but so far so good with the, <laughs> with the live fire on stage. You're still here. So it, it's yeah. working out. <laughs> One of my first acting teacher came to see the show and she texted me after and she said, you have to tell them to take that out. I, I'm I'm scared for you. And I said, I, I've actually got it now. I think in the beginning, I was kind of scared of the fire, but now I, I feel comfortable with it. Maybe too comfortable. Who knows? <laughs> I also wanted to talk about working with Bruce Sussman and Barry Manilow in terms of just developing and finessing the the musical numbers, which are so beautifully done because, you know, this is this is a show that has been in the works that they have been writing and working on and trying to bring to Broadway, not even just for a few years, but for a few decades. Um, and so, so much time and thought has gone into every single detail, even before all of you were cast in, this, in the show. Um, and I've heard you talking about Barry, especially kind of even when you were recording the cast album, just being like, what if we tried it this way? What if we tried it that way um and so what has the experience been like in working with them on this particularly just with that idea that they have such a deep relationship with the material but yet they're always still interested in trying new things with it 
Yeah. I mean, this show is their baby. Uh, and I think especially with Bruce, um, it, I mean, he was in every rehearsal, uh, you know, and every tech rehearsal, he was there all day long, you know? And, and so if you ever had a question, why do I say this? Why do I, you know, why do I go there? He was just there to provide all the context. And, um, I think especially in the workshop, you know, a lot of things were changing. And uh, so it was fun to be a part of those conversations and say, you know, I feel like we, we're getting from point A to point C, but I, what if there was a moment of point B to, you know, in between? And so things got added in the workshop, like the proposal, even just getting, you know, getting proposed to before the wedding, like there was a little scene there, but then it was, and then saying, oh, you know, I think, what if I was singing the song that he wrote, you know, and then it could be more meaningful for, for that end of the show. And so it was really, um, it's cool to see how all of those little ideas have grown into the thing that it has become and getting to work with them has been really wonderful. And I mean, Bruce is so, he just is a wealth of knowledge about this history and so it's really also wonderful to hear him talk about the show and and talk about the comedian harmonist and the, this time period. He just knows so much about it. And um, and then of course Barry, um, it's I mean he's just he's just an icon and he's been really sweet and generous to me. And uh, you know the only the only thing he just kept saying to me was in where you go. He was like, um, you know I need you to like remember to bring the fire, you know, and, and Sierra's verse is going to be like the beautiful loving verse. And there's just, you can't lose the fire in that verse and, and make sure that there's a lot of that in there. And so I think about that whenever I do it. And with that idea of, you know, having a musical number where you have to bring the fire, when it comes to recording the the cast album, which you've done, that's such an interesting exercise because you're essentially trying to capture the feeling of being on the stage and having all of that physical space to move around, all of the interactions and eye contact that you have with the yeah. cast, but you're really doing it with just your voice. Um, and so how did you set about trying to capture what you're bringing on stage when you're in the recording booth recording the album? Well, it's interesting in a recording studio because you have more options available to you in terms of auditory storytelling because the mic is so close. And so you have opportunities like on stage. Yes, you're mic'd and they can do a lot. But, you know, on stage, when you're you're belting, you're belting. <laughs> and even when you're quiet, you can't get too quiet or or the, it just won't pick you up. I mean, the mic is all the way over here. But in the studio you're up here. And so in those soft moments, you have the opportunity to get, you know, that's why Billie Eilish can do what she does, you know? And, and so you have the opportunity to do, to tell a slightly different sound story than you are able to do on stage. And I think that was especially interesting to do with Barry, who's a master at that and who's put out how many albums. And it was fun to listen. You know, he'd send me in and say, okay, do another take, do another take. And then we go through, I do like three or four. And then we go through and he'd listen phrase by phrase for each phrase, which, which uh, take he liked for that phrase. And then we'd move on to the next phrase. And if he wasn't happy, I'd go back in and do another one. And so there was a lot of opportunity to like really get specific about, oh, I want more of this kind of husky sound here or this kind of 
or really go full belt here and we can turn the gain down on the mic, you know, but there's just more opportunity, I think. Um, and it was really fun to be in a room with Barry, who's just a master at that. And is it even something where just like the breath work that you're doing is very different? Because again, it's like the sound is so different and you're kind of able to draw from a slightly different place sometimes. I think so. I mean, you you definitely can do things in chunks, you know, so you don't have to worry about, okay, do I need to get, do I need to have time to get my breath in for the next, you know, because you might just do a chunk and then take a break and then go back into a chunk. Um, although, I mean, I don't, I don't know. The other thing about recording cast album, I recorded it before we started rehearsals. So I didn't have, I had it in my body a little bit from doing the workshop, but everybody else had been doing it off Broadway, you know, except for me and Allison Sims. So it, it wasn't, if I did it now, I think it would be different because I've, I'm used to singing it in a certain way now, but at the time I was still also kind of finding what it was going to be. And in terms of just the the pacing that you have to create for yourself in doing a show like this, um, you know, I, I heard you talk about with Funny Girl, once you were doing that role eight days a week during that time period, that that was a very different pacing for you to have to kind of figure out and sustain. And so in doing Harmony, what were some of the things that you were able to carry over that you really kind of figured out for yourself and what you needed in that regard? Yeah, I mean, Fanny, like, is just a beast of a role. And so I couldn't really do if I was playing the role eight times a week, I couldn't do anything else. Like I couldn't, um, I could not attend interviews. I couldn't, you know, I had to be on total voice rest. I couldn't socialize. Um, and I had to be very, very strict about my diet because I found that I was so, so sensitive to getting really phlegmy and, and I have found in other shows that doesn't even matter so much, but for Fanny, the song people, in the key that it is set in, in the show, it's like impossible. Um, oh, is that a little, is that a little yes, cat just angel? Yeah. Hello, baby. I have one that looks oh my similar. Gosh. I love it. Um, but uh, yeah, so like I learned, like I had to eat sort of very plain, not spicy, not, not dairy, you know, and before I sang and I tried to be kind of done eating an hour before the show, or I would get, I would have all this mucus on my cords. Sorry for being gross, but I would have to be like, <clears throat> you know, just for people. Because I found that if you're singing, if you're belting, if you're singing sort of in a more pure head voice, soprano-y land, you can kind of cut through, unless it's really, unless you're sick or whatever, you can cut through on a full belt, cut through the stuff. And you can sing over the stuff from your head. But when you're in that perfect, when you're in that little mixy place, right on your passaggio, um, it's like so delicate that if I had any phlegm at all, it would just like rattle. And it was, it was a terrible experience. So I had to be really, really disciplined about my food uh, and, and all that stuff just to minimize any of that like inflammation. And now in harmony, it's a much less vocally and physically taxing role. You know, I'm not dancing. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I, I had 14 or 15 songs in funny girl. I have like two and a half in this one. So it's like, it's a lot. I don't have to, follow the same level of discipline. Um, like I, I can, but I still now try to, I know about myself, like, okay, we're not doing dairy. We're not doing spicy. We're not, you know, for an hour before 
the singing part of the show is over. I have to be aware of that. I also know that if I like go for a jog or something before the show, that's really helpful for me. It gets my vocal folds nice and warm so that, um, my warm up will go really well. I also like have a better warm up than I ever had, but you know, funny girl really taught me the, the importance of having a really strong warm up and my body now is just sort of used to it. So even if I'm under the weather or whatever, usually my warm up really helps get me there. And, uh, and, but the difference is now it's like when I'm done, when I've, my character is at the Belgian border and I'm done for the show, that's when I go eat chocolate. <laughs> so I eat like a lot of um, sweets in the second act <laughs> because I'm done singing for the day. And uh, so that's my, that's my snack time. I mean, with, with Funny Girl as well, like, especially when you started out, because you played her as the standby, the alternate and the full-time role. But when you're the standby and you don't know if you're going on each night, you still have to be physically, vocally, emotionally ready to step on at any stage, even once the show begins. And mm -hmm. to do that eight times a week, I just think is so fascinating in terms of what that requires from you. And so what was that cycle of just kind of like getting yourself ready, knowing, okay, most likely I'm not going to need to go on, but also everything has to be ready that I could literally step out of the wings at any second throughout the entire evening. Well, sometimes like if, if, Leah was feeling under the weather. Like I would have a heads up, you know, Leah's not feeling well. So then at least you could go, okay, I'm going to go put my hair in pink curls or, or go warm up. And she never, um, she never called out in the middle of a show. I never did a mid show <laughs> swing on, but, um, sometimes, so sometimes I had a heads up if I knew like, oh, she's been struggling this week with her, you know, with a bug, you know, so then I could sort of be extra careful. But there were plenty of times where I didn't know, she didn't know, you know? And so suddenly you get the call. You know, one day I did like the pride race in Central Park. Like I got up at like 6 a.m., went to the park, which is not close, you know, ran a thing, picked up the rainbow bagel on my way home, get a text. You're on for both shows today, you know? And, and then one time, like I did this nasal rinse thing that, sorry, this is gross, <laughs> but like there's this machine where, you know, the squeezy bottles, like if you're trying to clean out your sinuses, singers do this stuff all the time. And so there's like this machine version of that, that like will sort of do it for you with a, with a, a mechanism. And I, my castmates were like, you got to try this. It's so good. It's so good. And so I got one and I, um, I used it a couple of times. It went okay. And so then I just doing it one morning and basically I got like water in my eustachian tubes. They got flooded, which makes you partially deaf. Like I could still kind of hear, but I lost about 10% of my hearing. And that's when I got the text, you're on for both shows today. And you go, okay, okay. You know, I can't really hear. Um, and that those were crazy shows because the first one, both my ears were clogged up, but I could hear you know, coming back through the monitors, coming back through the house, I could hear myself. So I was just going to saying, just, okay, you've done this a hundred times. Like, just trust your body. Your body knows it. Don't push. Just try and trust it, even though you can't hear yourself in the same way that you're used to. But then between shows, one ear like drained and the other ear didn't. And so then I was on for the second show. And this was wild, was 
I pitch started warping because of however the physics works. And I was hearing, I kept saying to people, why the orchestra is so out of tune. It's insane. And people were like, I guess so. And I was like, no, don't you hear that? Don't you hear it? And it, I mean, it sounded like when you take a, a vinyl and you put it on the wrong speed. And I was like, this sounds horrible. And the people were like, it, it, uh, I think it sounds normal, you know? And then one of my castmates who is partially deaf in one ear said to me, it's you. <laughs> it's because your, your hearing is clogged. And so your, your, the sound waves are going in differently to different. So it's your brain is warping the sound somehow. And so once I knew that I was like, okay, but I literally couldn't find the centers of pitches. And I was going like people, like it was crazy. Um, and then thankfully it drained and I never had that happen again. <laughs> but so you're going on in times when you're prepared and like I had my regular Thursdays or whatever. And then you have times where that can happen to you and you just, you just breathe and look in your scene partner's eyes and try to find a way to keep going and trust yourself. But I mean, after that kind of, after that kind of horror of just being on stage and not being able to hear the pitches, uh, less freaks me out now, you know? I'm, I'm so impressed at the way that you were able to still kind of navigate through all of that. And, and going back to what you were talking about before, um, when you were touching on some of like the, the technicalities of belting, it was reminding me of like one of the videos that you made, because I love the way that you've used social media and particularly on TikTok to talk a lot about the behind the scenes and the technicalities of performing and singing in different ways. And there was one where you were talking about belting and it's like, you know, you don't actually bring it to 100%, 80% is kind of like what you found to be the sweet spot. And I was interested in just kind of your process in really kind of figuring that out for yourself and kind of like starting to to go to 100 each time you were belting when you started singing professionally a lot more and then finding actually if I rein it in a little bit that's the perfect place for it yeah I I think you know we have this feeling as performers where we feel like we have to put we we want to feel ourselves working hard because it feels like you're giving everything you can. And so if you're giving everything you can, then you can't fault yourself or something, you know, you want to feel like you're working hard, but um, it actually sort of turns out that that is pushing because when you feel yourself working really hard, that means you're squeezing and it means you're using all these unnecessary muscles and constricting your sound. And I actually think it, it goes beyond just singing. I think it, as an actor, I've tried to incorporate that too, where you want to give a hundred percent of yourself and sort of step in as much as you can each day. And, you know, all of those things, but if you are feeling yourself working really hard, then you're probably cutting yourself off from what could happen. And from something that, um, from, I think ultimately, like when we watch really great any great performer or athlete, you know, it's not just singers and actors. It's like any great, anybody, there's so much ease to what they do. And they get that by realizing, I think they often, they go to, they go too hard for a long time and then they go, Oh, I actually have way more control if I just can, you know, don't push so hard. And so I try to think about that in my acting as well. So that I'm not just like, feeling myself working, but I can be open to what is coming to me from others. And I think as a singer, it's like, 
I had to learn that because I couldn't sustain ultimately doing feeling like I was pushing that hard eight shows a week as Fanny. And then I, my voice teacher was like 80%. And I did that. And then I went, wait a minute, I sound better. And he was like, yeah, you, yeah. (laughs) He was like, that's common, you know, is, is actually you're freer, you're more open and you're doing better work because you're not pushing. I love that. And and lastly, I did want to ask you about your holiday album, Christmas with you, um, because I love that it's, it's a mix of cover versions, but you've also included an original song and even just, you know, there's a music video that you have that mixes, you know, performances of the song with animation of, of you yeah. and, and the whole band, which is, is really beautifully done. Um, and so just what has the experience been in really kind of figuring out what is the artistic vision that I have in terms of the songs that feel important to me to put out there and the way that I want to communicate and storytell with them. Well, I was doing a concert at 54 Below last year, holiday concert, and um, I came up with this idea for song. I was like, well, originally I had thought, oh, I would love to do an, an album of Christmas music by all Jewish composers. And so we were kind of coming from that place as we put the concert together. And then I was like, wait, I'm a Jewish composer. Like I should write a song. <laughs> and I got this idea for the song while I was on the subway on the way to Funny Girl. And I started singing it into my notes, at, you know, my voice memos. And uh, I got to Funny Girl. I wasn't on that day. And I went into this closet that we have, that we had there that stored a lot of understudy costumes. We called it the asbestos room. And um, it, there wasn't asbestos, but it felt like there would be. And um, it was the only place because I shared a dressing room with like nine people, standbys and swings. So it was the place we'd go to if we needed to take a call, be alone, have some peace and quiet. And so I went into this closet, which had no, like, you couldn't have Wi-Fi. You couldn't have, there was no heat. There was no anything, but you could just sit there and have quiet. So I sat there and I wrote the song and sent it to Jason, my husband, who does all my arrangements and plays piano. And, and, um, he was like, oh, we have to do this. We have to do this. So we performed the song, we debuted it. And then he was like, we should record it as a single. And then we said, well, we also have these other arrangements we did for this concert. And like, maybe we should do two songs. And then we were like, well, maybe, maybe we should make it an EP. Like we didn't have uh, quite the time to do a full album, but we were like, suddenly we're like, well, then we're there. Like, let's just do have yourself a merry little Christmas because we do that song anyway as a duo. So it sort of grew into this EP, Tumbala Laika, which is the Yiddish folk song we had learned uh, we were doing a Hanukkah celebration for the JDC, which is a, a very uh, well-respected, uh, large uh, Jewish humanitarian organization. And they had said, you know, you could sing Osa Shalom or Tumbala Laika. And I was like, I don't know Tumbala Laika. And they were like, you don't? And I said, well, I've been learning Yiddish on Duolingo for a few years now. Can I, I think I'll learn that and put my Duolingo skills to use. So I love the song and we took that arrangement and built on it uh, and made it more jazzy, New Orleans jazz specifically, because we love New Orleans jazz. And um, and then uh, there was the man with the bag, which was the animated the animated one, which I came up with that, that idea. Also, I was sitting in my dressing room at Funny Girl with the swings and I was like, it'd be so like I love peanuts, you know, and it'd be so fun to do something animated and. And then I got this idea for what if we animated the whole band and as kids opening their Christmas gifts and their music, you know, it's, it's, it's music related It's their instrument. And so I came up with the whole storyboard sort of sitting backstage and, and um, then 
that influenced the arrangement that Jason wrote. We were like, oh, well, what if on the modulation this happens? And so the visual art started, you know, started having an effect on the music. And so they started talking to each other in these fun ways. And then Mer have yourself a Merry Little Christmas. That song, I just, I'm a big Judy Garland fan. I mean, she's like my everything. And I grew up watching Meet Me in St. Louis. It's like my favorite ho uh, holiday movie. And I played the role that she played in my high school, um, in my high school uh, senior year show. And um, there was a girl uh, who, who playing the younger sister, Tootie. Her name's Catherine Lodadio. And uh, so I sang this song to her. And it was this really special sort of sacred moment we shared together. And she very, very sadly passed away in her early twenties. And I, so I, whenever I sing this song, which has so much yearning and melancholy in it for a holiday song, especially is like, I immediately, I always like dedicate it to Catherine and her memory and think of that moment that we shared. And that's also part of why I think the arrangement that Jason and I have of that song is so intimate and and melancholy ultimately, because it, it really, I think that song is really about the people who we wish we could be with uh, during the holidays. Oh, I, I love how organically all of that came together and also really, really enjoyed your performance in, in harmony and getting to see you on stage. So congratulations on everything that you have going Thank on right you. now. Thank you so much, Julie. Thank you for having me.